I am one of the pastors here at Portico Church. It is so wonderful to be here. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for joining us as we worship the Lord and the risen Lord specifically today, just like we do every Sunday. We are going to be looking at the implications and the purpose of the resurrection today. So a couple things that we're going to be assuming. We're going to be assuming that the resurrection actually happened, and we're also going to be assuming that the resurrection actually matters for us. And so we're going to talk a little bit about why it matters this morning. I think that's a really important thing to consider. Um, And this week, I had a great opportunity to get away from the children who we love, but needed a break from, and spend some time with my wife. And um, we had a moment on our drive back where we started having a conversation that reminded me a lot of one of our first conversations that we ever had and we started talking about death, because that's kind of who we are. It's weird, I know. It's okay. The first conversation we had, I was asked by my wife, who is studying international security, what my favorite genocide was. <laughs> and I didn't know how to answer the question. This felt like a trap. And so fast forward a number of years, and... We're talking about death again, but this time we were talking about death in a more personal, less abstract context. We were talking about death because it's a reality. And it's a reality that asks all of us questions. And it's also the reality that frames any kind of understanding of Easter Sunday. If you don't understand death, the resurrection isn't going to be important. If you don't first understand the horror of death, then there's not going to be associated any joy of resurrection. And this is something that I think we have become increasingly detached from in our culture. Death is something that we get a lot of distance from, or at least we try to. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We certainly don't look at it unless you work in a hospital. And if you do work in a hospital, then you are associated, you are acquainted with death. And you've seen it. You've smelled it. You've heard it. And it's horrific. It's not something that we should just ignore, though, because it's universal. It's a universal equalizer that every single person in this room, we will die. And so it asks you some questions. Like, what happens when you die? I don't know. That's what we were talking about. Like, what's that going to feel like? Is it just like somebody turning off the lights? Like, do you just stop existing? Then, like, what's the purpose of anything? Right? You can see how that question of death turns into nihilism really quickly where nothing matters and everything becomes meaningless. Is there anything that can save us from death? Is there anything that can move us past death? That seems like maybe a question out of human desperation that we ask. Like, how can, how can we get through this? We spend a lot of 
energy and resources trying to extend or postpone death. And I get that, right? That's a good thing. It's an act of hope to try and extend and preserve life. But in the end, everybody dies. And the early church, not even that early, but about 300 or 400 years ago, there was a group of Christians, the Moravian Brethren, and they were gathering and their congregation was in Germany. And they had a tradition. And it's something that we have started to take on ourselves, but we just do it a little bit differently because we don't like death. The tradition is that they would, in the dark hours of the morning, before the sun had risen, they would all come to the church. It's like the first Easter Sunday sunrise service. But they would not go into the church. Instead, they would go into the cemetery. And they would gather in the cemetery where their family and their friends are buried. Maybe not too distantly were buried. Maybe there was some who were recently buried. And they sit there among their dead. And they wait. And when you do that, the reality of death hits you. And you know, I'm going to be in this dirt too. Because I've seen all of these people, and I've known them, and I've loved them, And now their bodies are here, and they're decomposing. And then the sun rises, and as the sun touched the earth, one of the members of the church would say, he is risen. And the rest of the congregation would call out, he is risen indeed. And then they would have trumpets, And they would fill the graveyard with a celebration, a celebration of hope. And that story is powerful, and it's exactly what we're going to talk about today. That Jesus is our shepherd, and he shepherds us from death to life. So follow him. Follow him as he shepherds you from death to life. And we're going to be looking at a really strange text. It's 1 Corinthians 15, which is very commonly preached in Easter services, but it's after the description of the reality of the resurrection. Again, I said we're taking that for granted. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And now we're going to be talking about what is the purpose, why it matters that Jesus rose from the dead. And so you can turn with me. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 42 through 49. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll jump into this together. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Please pray with me. Loving and gracious and holy Father, we come to you this morning and we're celebratory. But we're not celebrating something that is disconnected from our reality. Because, Lord, you would never have a superficial celebration like that. But, Lord, our celebration is born out of the resurrection. It's through death that we know your life. And so, God, I ask that all of us here, that we would receive your Son that we would look to him again to shepherd us through our greatest fear, to shepherd us through the greatest unknown, to bring us from a situation that is without human solution and to bring us into eternal life. And Lord, we can claim that because your church has seen it. They've heard of it. And they testify to it with their own lives. So God, we thank you for your spirit that continues to bring us from death to life. As it works in us the perfect and holy life and death of your son. Help us to understand that and to believe it here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage breaks down into a few different sections. And so we're going to look at first two bodies. And as Paul is using this analogy of bodies and seeds, he's really trying to show the Corinthian church that the resurrection is reasonable. Because that was an objection they had to the resurrection. They were like, this is ridiculous. You're just making stuff up. Like there's nothing like this. This is completely unreasonable. And Paul's showing them, no, it's actually reasonable. You understand this. You've seen it. There's an analogy here that you get so your reason can understand it. Secondly, he takes us to two atoms. Two bodies, two atoms. And the purpose of taking us to the two atoms is to show us that the resurrection is true. Not only is it reasonable, but it is true. It happened. It's real. This, Like Chris said, this happens in history. And finally, the implications of this is that there is one shepherd. And that means our resurrection, our resurrection, your resurrection, your life after death, it's not only possible, 
but it's certain because we have one shepherd. So two bodies, two atoms, one shepherd. Let's start with two bodies. And so like I said, he is talking about these two bodies because of a question that was posed to him earlier in the letter that's basically like, oh yeah, it's the cynical question that's kind of sneering their nose at Paul. Like, oh yeah, how then are the dead raised? Do they, um, you know, does their decomposing body come up? Like, is it the same body? They're showing the absurdity of the resurrection. And so they think they've kind of landed Paul into a gotcha moment. But Paul responds by showing like, no, no, no. The body's different. You sow one type of body and what is raised is another type. And we understand this. We see it in nature. That when you plant a seed, there's a connection between the seed and the flower. But the body of the seed is different from the body of the flower. And so what you sow is one thing, and what is raised is another. And so he's appealing to their reason. He's saying, look, this is something that you get. But then he kind of opens up something more than that. It's not just reasonable, it's desirable. Because the body that we sow is weak. He describes it in a number of different ways. One, it's perishable. Second, it's dishonorable. Third, it's sown in weakness. And then it's natural. So this is something that we all intuitively get. And it's also something that the average Greek, the average Corinthian, would have like been following along with. So Paul's kind of giving them a little nugget here. Because they had this idea that the spiritual was way better than the natural. And so they separated the spiritual from the material. And so what Paul's doing is he's saying, the bodies that you live in, you guys know this, they're weak, they decay. They're embarrassing sometimes. They're weird. But the purpose of them is to sow them in the ground. And so you see already what he's doing. He's alluding to death. He's saying, when you sow your body, that is death. Death is the sowing of this body. And then he starts to point to another body. And this is where he's starting to make connections for them. And he's helping them understand what the resurrection of the dead actually is all about. They say, what you receive, the body, the soma that you receive, it's still a body. It's material. It's not this disembodied, spiritual, kind of nebulous existence that you see in the Disney cartoons where people floating on a harp transparently. No, what we receive is material, but it's so much better. What's raised is imperishable. It's lasting. It will not fade. What's raised is glorious. It's no longer embarrassing. We're no longer ashamed of anything of our bodies. What was sown in weakness is now raised in power. All of the ways that our bodies don't work and all of the ways that our bodies stop working as we age is sown. And what's raised, what we receive, is a powerful body. A powerful body that 
Even the most powerful human who is living in this first body would be envious of. It's a body of power. And then finally, what is sown is natural. What is raised is spiritual. And what he's not doing here is he's not undoing everything that he's already said and said it's not even material, it's spiritual. No. What he's doing is he's saying the body, the physical body, the flesh and blood that you will receive is completely filled and fueled by the Spirit. The Spirit is the life force of it. You have received the final and full measure of the Spirit. And it gives your body life, everlasting life. And that leads us to the two atoms. Because how can it be? How can it be that our bodies, like what is the mechanism? How does that work? Is it just like magic and God waves a magic wand? No, the resurrection is true. The first Adam became a living being. So Adam was made alive by God in the garden. God spoke and he came to be. He was made to be alive. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is one little verse. And in this one little verse is an astounding mystery. The second Adam, Jesus, eternally God, taking on human nature, becoming a life-giving spirit. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became God the Spirit. He's not saying that. He's referring specifically to the work of Christ in his humanity as the second Adam who was so filled with the Spirit upon his resurrection that he was able to ascend and do what? To breathe the Spirit out on his people. His Pentecost. The resurrected and ascended Christ fully empowered with all of the due rewards of living a perfect life, of dying for his people, is given the Spirit by the Father as a reward. And Jesus doesn't just hold it for himself. He gives it. He sends it to fill his people. Think about this. Adam lived a life that led to death. Jesus died a death that led to life. Adam was so obsessed with living his life in a self-willed, self-determined way that it brought in death. Death is not just an event. This is another thing that we get confused about. It's not just an event that happens at the end of your life. It's a realm. It's a realm of decay and destruction, of deceit, 
of evil, of wickedness. And it all entered into this world because the first Adam lived his life to the fullest. He did what he wanted to do. Doesn't this cut against our cultural narrative? Where truth is inside us. You live your truth. Whatever is true to you, you live it that way. And we do. And it produces the same fruit that it did for Adam. It creates a culture of death, a culture of deceit, a culture of decay, where things become frayed and fall apart. We do this. All of us. How do I know that? Because Paul says it. We have all borne the image of the man of dust. That's universal. There is none of us who doesn't live that way. But there was one who became a life-giving spirit. And that's what he's pointing to in this verse. Jesus didn't live his life to the fullest. He gave his life. He lived in a way to give his life away. Out of love, first and foremost, of God, of his Father who sent him. And second, for his people who would receive his life by faith. And it was a God, a God-willed life. Jesus, you see this in Gethsemane, he submits his human will to continue to preserve his life to the will of God. It was no, you're to give your life up. And so Jesus went from life to death for us. But in becoming a life-giving spirit, he did not stay in the realm of death. He conquered it. He overcame it, and he rose again. And it is in this resurrection that he has the power to send to us from the right hand of God his very spirit to fill us and to shepherd us through our own death and into life. And this is where we see the shepherding aspect of Jesus. And this is maybe different than something that we would focus on typically in Easter, and that's okay. But there's a pattern that resurrection establishes. And it's really important to know this pattern because this is how Jesus is shepherding you now, death to life. And what he's doing is he's actually preparing you to trust him in that moment so that you know with certainty that your death is not the end, but it's actually the very doorway into eternal life. And the pattern that we see is expressed by Paul in Philippians 3. It says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So you see what Paul's saying there? Is he's applying the logic of crucifixion and resurrection, of death and resurrection, to the life that we're living now. This isn't just about when we die and go to heaven. It's about how we live now. He is shepherding you now in this way. And it's a way that's hard. I counted as loss, not some things, all things. Think about that for a minute. Are you willing to lose everything? Are you willing to have the idea that you had for your family taken away from you for the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection in that thing? Are you willing to lose the idea that you had of your career for the sake of knowing the power of Christ and his resurrection? What is it in your life that you're not willing to lose? Because, friends, there's something. There's something. And that thing is standing in the way of you understanding, experiencing, trusting the power of the resurrection for you. Because it's a way of self-protecting and holding on and saying, no, I can't give this. I have to live it. It's the way of the first Adam. It's the way of the natural man. It's the way of dust. And it will disintegrate with the dust. But we can know that we can, with Paul, count all things as loss for the sake of knowing the power of the resurrection and attaining it. How can we know that? It's because of the second Adam. This is why the resurrection is so important to us. Because Jesus is a human He's not a raccoon. He's not a possum. He's not an angel. If you see any of those things come back from life, that would be pretty cool. But it wouldn't matter because we are not those things. But because Jesus is human, we can look to him and we can see There it is. That's what it is. That is the answer to death. The questions that we ask, that death asks us, are all answered in the resurrection. Because what it means is that we don't stay dead. And we receive the supernatural body that is prepared for us. This body that is fully alive to the Spirit, that is not hampered by sin or the effects of sin, we receive that. 
And we're brought into a new creation that's material. All of those things that you're afraid to lose, the life that you think that you want so desperately, friends, they are just tiny little blueprints of the fullness of the life to come. Who would exchange the perfectly crafted house for the blueprint? But that's what we do when we cling to those things. Let them go. Jesus is shepherding you through that process. He's saying, you can suffer. And it's joined to my suffering. And it's joined in a mysterious and powerful way to my resurrection. Because your suffering is for me, and he's showing us how to give our life. Because if your goal is to live your life, then suffering doesn't make any sense. Nobody lives to suffer. But if you're like-minded with Christ, if you are united to his sufferings, then your act of suffering becomes wrapped up in this story of death and resurrection. And sometimes you get to see that. You see glimmers of it. You see how what you've gone through has led to help someone else. You've seen what you've suffered has led to someone else being comforted. And guys, sometimes we don't get to see that. But that's when you look back to Christ. You look at the one who is shepherding you through death and into resurrection. So maybe you have a chronic illness and you're not sure if there's any answer to it. Maybe you feel stuck in an impossible situation and you're longing for resolution. You're longing for redemption in that situation. If that is you, then this message speaks to you, the message of Christ's resurrection. Because what it says is that this body, this life, It's only being sown. But what you will receive is power, is strength. It's glorious. And friends, we don't get to see that glory in this earth because we are still living in an earth that is fading. And living in that earth would be like putting something as glorious as the sun onto a shelf at Harris Teeter. It wouldn't make sense. But we saw it. We saw it for just a little bit. We glimpsed it in Christ. When he was raised from the dead, he received that body. And his own disciples didn't recognize him. And they were confused. And he was like walking through doors and things. I don't know what it's going to be like, but that is what it's going to be like. Because Christ is the first fruits, and we are to follow. And this will bring comfort to you throughout your life. So as you hope in this, as you look to this, as you have that pattern of death and resurrection work out in all these little um, foreshadowing ways 
in your relationships, in your work, in your health, in your family, in your friendships, what they're doing is they're preparing you for something. And I was remembered, reminded of just how important this is. Because I have a really good friend whose dad is getting very old. And his dad is living with them, and he's caring for him. And his dad has long been a widower. His mom died a long time ago. And in the last five years or so, his dad had like a late blooming romance. And he had a girlfriend. And they lived far away from each other. And yes, her name was Bunny. (laughs) So it's an Easter story, right? (laughs) But they would talk every day. They would talk for hours. And they shared this beautiful ending of their life with each other. And he glimpsed what it was like. But then because we're still in a body of dust, one day, Bunny called him and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't have the strength for it. And she couldn't talk to him. And so he lost another friend, and she died. And what do you say to him? What do you say to that man? All of his friends have died. He's outlived most of the people he knows. How does he get any comfort? Continue to follow Christ. He is shepherding you from death to life. And so... Paul ends this section of Corinthians, of 1 Corinthians, with verses that we're familiar with. And they're really the capstone of the resurrection. And it's the victory that we stand in proclaiming the resurrection of Christ today. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58. They'll be up on the screen. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Please pray with me. Father, you have given us treasure And we neglect it, and we forget about it, and we leave it out in the yard, and you recover it for us, and you bring it back to us. And so, God, I thank you. I thank you for this rhythm of focusing on the resurrection specifically, intentionally, Because it reminds us of what's true every single day, that you are bringing death to life, 
that you are moving this world from decay to flourishing. And so, Lord, I pray for us that we would all trust you as we follow you on that journey. And that we would know that you are the only God and that you have provided only one way, but it is a sure way. It is a true way. It's a beautiful way. And his name is Jesus. And he reigns forever. And he is sending his spirit to fill his people, to give us a foretaste of the glory that is to come. We thank you for this, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.